Well, starting this Sunday and continuing for the next following three Sundays, we are going to consider the Christmas story in Luke's gospel. Um, In my childhood, our family would read the narrative of Jesus' birth on Christmas morning before we would open any presents. And as you probably know, the only two of the Gospels actually have the birth narrative of Christ in it, Matthew and Luke. And I was always hoping that Matthew would be read before we open presents because that edition is way shorter than Luke's edition. Um, Luke's edition is long. And if you like details, you'll love Luke. But if you're a kid waiting to open presents on Christmas morning, uh, even the briefest of readings didn't go fast enough. Um, Waiting patiently is like the greatest enemy of all children. And when Luke was read, uh, that's what we were called to do. And interestingly enough, that's actually what Luke calls us to do, to learn to wait patiently, to wait in faith, to wait by faith. That's, That's what this first sermon is all about. It's all about waiting by faith. It's about waiting on God to demonstrate his faithfulness faith through and through. Before we get to the story proper, though, we have to deal with an introductory comment in verses 1 through 4. Um, this, This comment is helpful for us because it shows us what Luke is trying to do. I think each of the gospel authors are doing something a little bit different, so we want to read the gospels on their own terms. Um, I'd like to describe it this way. I'd like to say that Matthew is like a memoir edition of Jesus's life. Um, Mark is like the Reader's Digest edition. John is like the Philosopher's edition. And Luke is like the investigative journalist podcast kind of edition. So if you're into these podcasts that work through things with lots of detail really slowly, that's Luke for you. And when you read the Gospel of Luke, you see him repeating himself over and over. He brings about two witnesses to every event, you know, meeting this criteria for investigative-like journalism. So as we get into this text, we're going to see a lot of details that Matthew doesn't draw attention to. And his whole point is to help this guy, Theophilus, understand with certainty, to know more fully and deeply what he already knows. That's a bit of a challenge for, I think, most of us who grew up as Christians when we come to the Christmas story. We, we might be lulled into boredom or disinterest because we already know the story. Well, Theophilus already knew the story too, but Luke is wanting to present it in a way that will give him a deeper understanding so that he'll know with certainty the things that he's been instructed. I, I think that will help us as we go through this birth narrative well, these two birth narratives over the next four weeks, so that we will know with certainty the things that we've already been aware of. So as we get into this text, we want to attend carefully to the details that Luke gives us. And you might be helped over the week to read Matthew's account of the birth narratives and see the differences, see what Luke draws out and how he presents a little bit of a different angle. Most of all, though, as we approach this text, we don't want to read it just as we would read a newspaper at a distance of events in a far foreign land. We want to read it and to read ourselves into the story, to see how we ought to live now based on how God acted in days past and how God's people either lived in faithfulness 
or sadly at times, unfaithfulness. As we see individuals in this first text awaiting the first advent of Christ, we will learn how to better wait on God to demonstrate his faithfulness, particularly as we wait for his faithfulness in the second advent of Christ at the return of King Jesus. So we enter this story, really a sad note, observing a couple's disgrace. The opening scene takes place during the time when King Herod ruled Judea. So not only will we observe a couple's disgrace, we'll observe a nation's disgrace. This detail that this guy Herod is ruling might seem insignificant, but if you get into the history a little bit, you understand that this king of Israel, we might say, was not appointed by God or one of God's prophets. Instead, he was appointed by this uh, Roman Senate. These outsiders set up their puppet king over the Jews. So if you're familiar with Israel's history at all, you recognize that Israel having their king on the throne is a really big deal. And when a different king is on the throne, it's like exile. In this case, they haven't been taken out of their land. It's almost more deplorable or more grating because it's like they're exiled in their own land. It's like they're captives in their own homes under the rule of this foreign entity. Well, whenever Israel is experiencing exile in the Bible, it's correlated with their unfaithfulness to God. So when we observe Israel under the rule of a foreign king, we're we're inclined to think that Israel is not living faithfully before the Lord or God's king would be on the throne. So what happens next then is a little bit of a surprise. If Israel's unfaithful, certainly the the temple system is not being faithful. But we come across very immediately a couple that are by all appearances righteous and blameless before God. We come across this guy named Zechariah and his wife named Elizabeth. Both of them come from priestly lines. Their lineage comes from the priestly system. Both are described as righteous in God's sight living without blame according to all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Even their names testify to their righteousness. Zechariah means Yahweh has remembered again, and Elizabeth means God is my fortune. So you have these righteous, blameless individuals in a land in exile. Now, when we come across righteous individuals we might be immediately inclined to think that these people are experiencing the fullness of God's blessing and kindness and glory and grace. God is rewarding them for their obedience, we might think. But as we read on, it seems that the opposite is actually the case. This blameless, righteous couple is not experiencing the full blessing of the Lord. They had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. Just means that they were old. They're beyond childbearing age. Likely, they've come to an age now where having hope for children is not even a thought in their minds. They're too old to have children. So things are not as they should be as we try to get into the story and sense what they're feeling, it's important for us to sense the disheartening nature of this infertility. Think in any culture or time, 
that's hard. That biological instinct to grow a family is met with opposition. The impulse to join your friends in the joys of parenthood is met instead with relational separation as longtime friends move on to deal with the joys and challenges of parenthood. Couples experiencing this lack, this infertility, feel left behind, forgotten in a childless past that remains their present. Zechariah and Elizabeth experience that. So we try to understand them, who they are. We have to grab onto the fact that their life lacked something. As disheartening or discouraging as infertility might be in our world, it was more than that in the ancient world. It wasn't just disheartening, it was disgraceful. For two primary reasons. First, the inability to bear children was considered disgraceful or even shameful because you weren't contributing to your society. You, you weren't fulfilling your role in life. Um, in the ancient world, your whole goal was to continue your family line, to contribute to your society, to fulfill your calling in life. Your, your family's business might be in danger if there are no children to take up the work when dad gets old. That's how parents were cared for in their old age, was through their children. So for a couple not to have children, something would have been wrong. What's more, secondly, especially in Israel, childlessness was connected to covenant unfaithfulness. In Israel's scriptures, faithfulness to God was connected to fruitfulness and flourishing, not only in terms of farming and agriculture, but also in terms of family and society. So if you were obeying God, living faithfully before him, you would have a large family, one would think, according to the promises in Deuteronomy. For this reason, most people would assume that if hardship came, whether it had to do with finances or food or family, then there must be something wrong between that individual in their life before God. Maybe that person sinned or violated a command of God or committed some other undefined act of unfaithfulness. Whatever the case may be, lack of children was disgraceful and communicated something was wrong between you and God. Well, between um, Zechariah and Elizabeth in this family, Luke makes clear that there isn't a problem between them and God. Um, their infertility is not caused by a lack of faithfulness. They're righteous. They're blameless. But yet, they continue to feel the disgrace of infertility. In Luke one twenty five, Luke reveals that Elizabeth considered her childlessness a disgrace. In one thirty six. The angel Gabriel refers to Elizabeth as the one who was called childless. Maybe that was the verdict of a physician saying that she would never have children, but more likely, it's how she became identified among her peers, the childless one. If the plight of the barren women in the Old Testament provide any window on her experience, we can assume that her identification of infertility as a disgrace was more than just her perception of the situation. It was a social reality. So we can exercise our imaginations to consider Zechariah's experience as well. This individual, 
a priest serving in the temple, was likely the subject of some measure of distrust, if not derision. Is this really the guy that we want offering sacrifices before the Lord? Is this really the guy that we want to represent us as he carries out priestly duties? It's extremely challenging to communicate the full depth of their experience, but it's a major aspect of this story, and it's a major theme that surfaces throughout the Bible. So we need to grab onto it. There's an experience of shame and social and religious disgrace. This reality makes it even more remarkable then that in their old age, Zechariah and Elizabeth remain faithful to God. You can imagine how they could easily be tempted to be unfaithful to God because he apparently was being unfaithful to them. Did they ever wonder how it could be that the God who promised in Torah that the obedient would experience a bountiful life in the land would fail to follow through on that promise? Did they ever overanalyze their own actions, doubting if they were actually righteous at all? wondering if there was some secret to spiritual flourishing that they needed to discover to get their desire for children. I think these temptations are common to modern Christians as well. We somehow get the idea that if we live obedient and righteous lives before God, we'll have a challenge-free life that will be exempt from hurt and heartache, that we'll get everything we want in life. What makes it worse It's our people who preach that exact message. So then when Christians encounter challenges or experience deep hurts and heartaches or when desires aren't met, we start to feel like we got gypped by Jesus, like God ripped us off because we're keeping our end of the bargain, but he's not keeping his. So we respond on a spectrum ranging from an almost unconscious resentment of God to an overt coldness to Christ. Perhaps even a deep fear that somehow we've gotten it wrong and we need to discover just the right theological truth or just the right spiritual secret that will be the silver bullet to get us on God's side and then we'll finally get the thing we think we need. In that matrix, we lose joy and we lose the ability to embrace the people who have whatever that thing is that we're lacking. We become unable to righteously and faithfully depend on God because it seems like he's not dependable. But in this story, we're invited into the life of a couple who faithfully endured and in so doing provide a model for righteous suffering and waiting on God even in the face of apparent unfaithfulness. This couple lived past the years of possibility of receiving what they desired, and they remained faithful anyway. So I think we should ask ourselves, will we continue to live faithfully before God in the face of unrelenting hardship? Will we serve God and remain righteous before Him when relationship after relationship falls apart And it seems like a marriage will never come. When marriage happens and it's really hard. When infertility persists. When that dream job is never offered. The market doesn't allow you to live the way you want to. 
the stock market dips, all your friends are more successful than you, you gain weight and can't seem to lose it, your children make decisions that break your heart, some unchangeable aspect of your life interrupts your acceptance among your peers. Will you trust God and remain faithful to Him in the face of hardship? Or better, will you persist in embracing God as faithful even when it doesn't manifest itself in the way you desire? This is the road of discipleship. This is what Christianity is. Walking by faith in a faithful God, patiently waiting on Him. This account provides a moral example in that way. It does more than that, of course. But God gives us, as a gift, Zechariah and Elizabeth as examples of those who lived blamelessly before God, fully trusting in Him even when their hopes came up short, time and time again. So we can learn from them. We can walk in their way. But this story progresses and we find a word of promise. Luke shifts from his description of this righteous couple's disgrace and disappointment to a scene in which Zechariah would experience one of the most significant moments of his priestly service. Though, because we're somewhat removed from these practices, it might go right over our heads. We might have a picture in our mind of priests in Israel sort of living on a temple compound and serving in the temple every day of their life or something like that, but that simply wasn't the case. Priests would serve two weeks out of the year. The rest of the year, they would carry on their normal affairs and family life and their job. So we might be able to describe it somewhat like the National Guard, where you might be called up for a couple weeks in the summer and on weekends, but you have a normal job. You have a normal life. That's more of how the priesthood was. You got called up to serve for two weeks out of the year, twice a year. In the rest of the year, you would go about your business. When you did show up those two weeks out of the year to do your priestly duties, uh, there were a lot of jobs that needed to be done. So lots would be cast, so no favoritism could be shown in assigning uh, responsibilities. And there was one responsibility that was prized above all others. And that was to go into the sanctuary and to offer incense. This would happen twice a day, morning and evening. So you only serve two weeks out of the year, and this would take place twice a day while you're on duty. Once you were chosen for this job, your name would be removed from the pool so that other people could get a chance. It is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And Zechariah gets that opportunity in this story. This is, this is like the peak climactic moment of his priestly experience. So he goes in to carry out this treasured duty. And as he's going about his responsibility, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. It was shocking. He was fearful. He was afraid. Now, angels appearing in the sanctuary was not unprecedented, but it hadn't happened according to Jewish tradition for over 500 years at this point. So it wasn't unheard of, but it hadn't happened for so long, it was so unlikely that if it did happen, we can understand why Zechariah would be afraid out of his mind. So he's overcome with fear, and the angel says something surprising to Zechariah. Do not be afraid, because your prayer has been heard. 
essentially the angel is communicating, I'm not here to be against you, but I'm here for you as God's representative in answer to your prayer. Whatever that prayer might be, it's not spelled out for us. We don't know exactly what Zechariah was praying for. It seems that they were beyond the age that he would continue to pray for children. So perhaps it was that he was praying for God to act and to bring about the messianic king to remove the rule of Rome. We don't know what the prayer was precisely, but we know that God is at work to answer it. I think it's worth reflecting at this point that God does hear our prayers and that he is gracious to answer them. Even if it doesn't happen on our timetable, even if it happens in surprising and unexpected ways, God hears our prayers and he answers them even when it seems like all hope is lost. So I want to encourage you to pray. To pray because God actually hears and answers. We'll come to find in just a moment that perhaps the answer is to a prayer that was prayed many years ago. Perhaps they had stopped praying for children. Whatever the case might be, the angel makes clear that Zechariah and Elizabeth will have a son, and they're to name the son John. So it's a miraculous event. They're beyond childbearing years, but God is at work in a surprising way. This baby will bring joy and delight to Zechariah, as we can well imagine, and many others will rejoice at his birth. This baby would be specially dedicated to God's work, He would be great in the sight of the Lord. This is a prophecy that Jesus himself confirms when when he says that John is greater than any prophet who had gone before him. It was part of this special role that John would take on. He would not drink wine or beer. And this is indicative of the special calling on his life, the ascetic practices that he would adopt in contrast to Jesus and his disciples who would drink wine and beer and would not adopt those ascetic practices. John is set apart for a special and unique role. He would be able to carry out this role because he would be given the Holy Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. This is an unprecedented announcement. And it indicates God's commitment not only to this pregnancy, but also to the mission that John would fulfill. As a brief side note, Um, Our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters might look at this text as an indication that would validate baptizing infants. I I would just want to say that the filling of a baby in the womb was unprecedented then and is unique and so unique as to be remarked upon in the Bible in this text and nowhere else. We don't read of this happening in the normal situation. So this is just a side note. Um, But at the same time, we especially those who have children, should remember that children are not too young to be uh, met with by God's Spirit, that God works in the heart of children. Um, I was reading a Presbyterian pastor or Anglican pastor who was preaching this text, and he said this, if children are young enough to sin, they're young enough to experience the grace of God. So, So what I want to say to you, parents, is to raise your children in the Lord. Teach them the ways of the Lord and trust that the Holy Spirit of God can work his gracious acts in their lives so that when they become an adult, they can truly say, 
there's never been a day when I was not believing in Jesus. I've always been repenting of my sin and trusting in Jesus. I've always known that God is gracious and kind. John has this happen in a unique way, but parents in our assembly should learn from it and relate to their children as those to whom the Holy Spirit delights to impart God's grace and kindness. But moving on, John would be empowered for a particular mission, and this is what it would be, to turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Um, The precise identity of the Lord their God is vague right now. But later on, when Elizabeth sees mother uh, Mary, she says, how is it that the mother of my Lord would come to me? So already Luke is trying to prepare us, just as John would prepare his readers to understand that Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament in some sense. That'll become clear later in the narrative. Like the prophet Elijah of Israel's scriptures, John will bring a message of judgment and salvation. He'll sound a warning of alarm and a call to repentance. John comes as an Elijah figure in fulfillment of the scriptures. In the last chapter of Malachi, fittingly the last book in our arrangement of the Old Testament, God promises that he will send Elijah. And John is the fulfillment of that promise. Isn't that amazing? 500 years after God made that promise, God kept his promise. He sent John in the spirit and power of Elijah. I think there are a few points of reflection here. First, God always keeps his promises. God will always keep his promises. It might take five years or 500 years or 5,000 years, but God will always keep his promises. So we should not doubt him. Just as God kept his promise to send Elijah, so too will he keep every promise that we find in the text of Scripture. Second, God's promises are sometimes kept in surprising ways that defy our expectation or the way that we would write the script. God keeps his promises in surprising ways. Now, this relates to the way we interpret the Bible. So in this case, in Malachi, God promised to send Elijah. Now, a strict literalist might read that text and suggest that God didn't keep his promise because the Elijah that we read about in the Old Testament didn't show up. But that suggestion fails to realize the way that language works and the way that God actually operates in the world. God does not use strict, wooden, literalistic language. Instead, he gives these types and these pictures and he brings his promises to fulfillment through them. So we should be open to being surprised in the way that God keeps his promises. When you read the promises of God in Scripture— Are you open to him fulfilling them in ways you wouldn't expect? Or are you demanding God to fulfill them in a particular way according to your imagination? What's more, we should be open to a more flexible approach to language and literature that allows us to grab onto the authorial communicative intent instead of a nearsighted reading of the text. We ought to be able to agree with Jesus should always agree with Jesus, by the way. We should be able to agree with Jesus when he says, if you are willing to accept it, John is the Elijah who is to come. A strict literalist demanded something else of Jesus in that moment. Jesus sets them straight. 
So if you're willing to accept a Lucan and Christ-like approach to reading the Old Testament, you might become surprised to see how many of God's promises have already come to fulfillment in Christ. So I just want to urge you, read the Old and New Testament like Luke would, like Jesus would, like the disciples would, and you'll see that some promises that you think God hasn't kept yet have already been fulfilled, and then you'll be able to rejoice all the more. Third, I think it's worth reflecting that God is often at work, but we humans are very slow to accept God's work. Notice that the first birth narrative is of John who will prepare the way for Jesus. Humans would be slow to accept Jesus. They needed someone to prepare the way. Sometimes I think we can get frustrated with God for not acting in the way that we want him to without realizing that maybe God is working slowly because if he did act, we wouldn't have the hearts to respond appropriately to his work. That's true in terms of redemptive history, and I think that's true for all of us in every aspect of our life. All these things that we think God should give to us right now, maybe we need to consider that we're not ready for them. That God is working instead to give us other things that will prepare the way so that when God acts in his time, we'll be able to respond appropriately to it. Instead of being disappointed, we can wait by faith for God to prepare the way so that we're ready to embrace all that he's doing for us in Christ. As the narrative goes on, Zechariah like Abraham of old before him, doubts the possibility that his wife can conceive. His response indicates a faltering in his faith, understandable as it might be. I don't think we should be overly critical of Zechariah here because we can all understand why he would lack faith, but we should perhaps posit that as an Israelite familiar with Torah, he would have known that God can do this. And especially as a priest, he would have known that God can do this. And in his faltering of faith, we should see ourselves who have the same scriptures and more, yet also sometimes doubt that God will do what he promised. Gabriel's response to Zechariah is to turn his attention away from his doubt and to graciously give him confidence, even if there's some level of judgment wrapped in it. Zechariah couldn't see by himself. Notice in the text, he says, how can I know this? For I am an old man. Well, Gabriel gives him two eyes in return to see, we might say. He says, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to give you this message. God graciously confirms the promise. But in that graciousness, there is a punitive sign to come, and that's that Zechariah will be mute. He won't be able to speak. He won't be able to uh, verbally articulate what happened to him. Gabriel adds one final consideration. These words would be fulfilled in their proper time. Zechariah was to wait some more, not knowing when this would take place. As someone familiar with Abraham's story, he could have wondered if this would take place in, at the end of his temple service or in 10 years or in 30 years. He was called to wait by faith, knowing that the promise would be fulfilled in his proper time. Well, Zechariah finishes his um, burning of incense in the temple. He walks out, and everyone's amazed that he was held up for so long. 
but he carries out his duties and then he returns home. Ostensibly, he communicates this, what happened to his wife through writing. And as the story progresses, we're left with a pregnant pause. Pregnant in two ways. One, in that Elizabeth actually became pregnant. She conceived. Um, but then also it gives us a pause in the narrative. It's really kind of a curious ending. As Zechariah goes home, um, Elizabeth conceived. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months. If you haven't ever wondered, or if you've, you're reading a different translation, she hid herself for five months. Why, why would she hide herself? This just doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and this is one of those really tough translation things that we just can't get into today. I'll give you my conclusion. I'm inclined to say that it would be better to understand this as she veiled herself or she hid herself in that way transitioning from deporting herself as an old woman to a young virgin. So um, following the mannerisms of young women uh, who were in fertility, childbearing age, which she was not. And I think that this was an immediate expression of her belief in the promise. Um, she, she's beyond the age where her regular bodily cycle would indicate that a pregnancy had happened. So by faith, for those months, very immediately, she responded, trusting that God would do what he said and that he would act immediately. She responded with the obedience of faith. And when she became aware of her pregnancy, she attributed that pregnancy to the fulfillment of God's promise. It's God who worked. God has taken away her disgrace is he looks on her with favor. I think a caution is in order because we might think that this is just another Hallmark story. She got pregnant in the end. The, the problem was fixed. Everything's great. But if we keep reading the story, in fulfilling his calling, John the Baptist was beheaded, executed, by a pretender king. We don't know whether or not his parents were alive to experience that sorrow. But just as there's joy surrounding the birth of Jesus, marked by a death to follow, so too is there with John. What's more, we might over-idealize the situation and forget that an older woman delivering a baby falls into the category of what we would call a high-risk pregnancy, and even more so in the ancient world. Elizabeth would have to deliver this baby by faith that God would preserve her through it. No promise had been made guaranteeing her safety. Instead, she would have to completely entrust herself to God all along the way. I think as we hit this pause in the narrative, that's the main response that we ought to have as well. To patiently, faithfully entrust ourselves to God and live in obedience to him not knowing what will happen in our lives, not, not thinking that we need to have a hallmark kind of life, not demanding that God fulfills his promises in the way that we anticipate, but giving ourselves over to him day after day after day as we wait to see him demonstrate his faithfulness in our lives. May we do this as an assembly. Father, we pray that you would give us the grace in the work of your Holy Spirit to wait by faith for whatever it is, 
for whatever that thing is that we're lacking in our life, for whatever that promise of yours is that has yet to come to pass, and most importantly, for the coming of Jesus that we expect and have expected for so long, would you cause us to live and wait by faith in the Son of God? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.